while our records are limited, one of the things I never see is this idea that because somebody had been incarcerated, therefore their ability to reintegrate into society once released Mm -hmm. has been diminished. And yet that is one of the biggest issues that we have today for the modern carceral system in the United States. Pod, a podcast about how the medieval world influences the politics, ideas, and lives of modern people. This week, I speak with Dr. Yolanta Komornitska, assistant professor at St. Jerome's University, about the medieval criminal justice system and what pre-modern ideas of law and justice can teach us about modern perspectives on crime, punishment, and incarceration. So I was wondering if maybe, um, to start us off, if you could introduce yourself and talk um, a little bit about the research that you do. Certainly. I'm Yolanta Komornitska, and my work primarily looks at crime and society in late medieval France. So I'm interested in basically from about 1254 until approximately 1425 is the time period I look at. I started off through doing my PhD work examining the Parlement de Paris and the use of Les Majestés and how the Parlement expanded the understanding of Les Majestés at a time when the new king, Philip Vava, was cementing his sovereignty in the realm. Um, From there, I've sort of gone off in a lot of different directions. I'm really interested in how people understood what crime was and how they responded to those understandings. I was actually, that was going to be my first question for you. That's perfect. Um, Crime is obviously like an enormous topic, as is incarceration. And um, I know that uh, personally, my views of crime are very shaped by, you know, a modern American um, context. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what medieval, um, I guess, especially medieval French attitudes towards crime might have been like, or what their engagement with crime um, generally was like. Sure. I think it is one of the things that can be hardest to grapple with about the Middle Ages, because we often have, um, just from stories and media and movies, this idea that the Middle Ages was at the same time exceptionally lawless and horrendously draconian. And somehow those are supposed to exist at the same time, which can be yeah. very confusing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so in terms of how people understood crime at the time, the 14th century, and one of the reasons why I love it so much, is we're starting to see a shift in attitudes towards crime taking place over that kind of long hundred year period. Towards the end of the period, Claude Gauval, for example, has shown there was an increased fear of crime, um, that the, the concept of crime in society became much more real within the daily imagined lives of the people of France. And that's something that can be tied to the fact of the Hundred Years War that's taking place, which by the time we get to the 1415, 1420s, England will have taken Normandy and we'll have Lancaster and Normandy set up. You'll have a very sort of real presence of crime in new kinds of ways um, because of the nature of that war. There's also the Black Death and just the attendant social disruption that the Black Death brought to Europe. Um, One of the things that I would just kind of remind people of there is the Black Death, while it first comes to Europe in 1347, it is endemic to Europe from that point on for the next several centuries. So it's not just a one and done after 1453, we never see it again. Mm -hmm. It keeps coming back every generation, causing disruptions um, in ways that people weren't anticipating. But even before then, so like I said, that's something that Claude Gauvard is looking at at the end of the 14th century. But even before then, at the beginning of the 14th century, we start to see an uncoupling of the idea of crime from the idea of sin which is how for centuries before this, within Christian Europe at least, crime had been understood as sin and that they were essentially words for the same kind of thing. And as society is changing, as you're getting the growth of the market economy within Europe, things that are sinful, all of a sudden, society can't really support as being criminal anymore because the society needs, for example, the market economy to function. And criminalizing it, uh, therefore, would mean the destruction of society, which in itself would be a form of sin. (laughs) So that (laughs) becomes very complex. Yeah. 
so this um, that entire period then that entire century is really a, a century that's in flux with definitions around crime. Uh, another way that we're able to see this is the way people talk about particular crimes. It's around this time that you start to see murder being split into multiple categories. The idea of self-defense starts to be articulated more clearly in a legal format, not just in a, I justify myself, but it's a, a legal framework that can be applied in a court of law. You start to see differentiation between what we would today call manslaughter and first degree homicide. The idea of premeditation versus something that's done in a blind rage or when drunk or something like that. Those start to be separate out in articulations and then in terms of how they're dealt with within the criminal justice system at the same time. So these are all changing during this period. That's super interesting. Um, that sort of shift that is happening at the end of the um, end of the 14th, beginning of the 15th century, as you said, or I guess just late medieval um, is um, sort of seems to be uh, something that um, I, I've heard a little bit about, but that um, the uh, person you recommended to me, Geltner, talks quite a bit about um, is um, the shift that he sees at the same time in tandem that is not just um, a change in, uh, as you're saying, what crime is, but also how crime is dealt with. Um, and I thought that it was really interesting. Um, he talks quite a bit about the shift from um, prisons as uh, kind of temporary spaces where you're held for, um, you know, until you can be punished or, or such. Um, and then that shift into incarceration as a punishment in and of itself, which I thought was super interesting, um, especially because um, everything else that I've read really um, by people who are carceral historians, but are a little bit later um, kind of situates that in the, early modern period and kind of says like, oh, incarceration is not a medieval thing, um, which is really like Foucault, I think is, is the biggest example of that, but um, lots of people do that. But um, so do you, at this time when, um, as you've said, the definitions of crime are changing um, in medieval France, do you also see this shift in uh, punishments as well? So I would say in France, not so much at this point. In France at this time, we're still seeing incarceration primarily as pretrial, um, as a means of ensuring somebody stays put for the ability to adjudicate guilt. Uh, and then there are exceptions within that. There's a lot of what we would call bail or parole that's taking place at the time. There is some post-conviction incarceration, and within France, that is far more likely to be seen actually within the ecclesiastical judicial system than within the secular system. So that, that's another thing to keep in mind is that when we're talking about France, we have multiple jurisdictions. So there, there's the really big distinction between whether it's secular justice, which ultimately derives from the king, or ecclesiastical justice, which is usually something that is specific to various monasteries. But at the same time, even within the secular world, there's royal justice, but we don't have a centralized society. We don't have a centralized state. And so the use of incarceration, for example, in the South, in Languedoc, which while more and more becoming part of sort of the King's France, if you will, has a very, very different culture, very different approach to attitudes around the use of the courts in order to redress grievances, the use of punishments and things like that. And then once you get the Hundred Years' War coming in and you have the English, for example, incarcerating people that they see as acting against English interests during the war, then you'll see incarceration being used in an essentially a kind of novel way because of the specificities of the war. But I think it well, I think Geltner's argument is really great for looking at the city-states of Italy. Um, those city-states are much more contained geographically and far more centralized administratively than what we have as a situation in France. So we don't see quite the same. So that centralization is really sort of key to the development of incarceration as a punishment in and of itself, rather than, oh, this is a functional thing that's helping us kind of keep organized and keep people in one place. That's super interesting. Right. Once somebody um, entered into the criminal justice system, so like once they committed a crime or once they, um, like you said, had a, a, you know, committed a crime in self-defense maybe, or had a crime committed against them, um, 
what would their um, uh, experience of the criminal justice system in France have been like, or what might it have been like? Some of the first questions that have to be asked are, what's the crime? Mm -hmm. If it's a civil offense, what we might call tort today, so a mm -hmm. uh, dispute around inheritance, for example, the court you're going to end up in, the system you'll end up in, will look different than if you the dispute is about murder or even about, say, petty theft. Right? So there's kind of that separating it out. Um, there's also two systems of being brought to justice. One is the accusatorial system and the other is the inquisitorial. And the accusatorial system is essentially, I have, I'm a victim, I've been injured by someone, and I go to the provost, the bailiff, and I say, I have received this injury, I accuse this other person of having injured me. Um, but I, as the accuser, am them somewhat on the hook for proving my case of mm. an injury. And if I can't prove it, I can be liable to the same punishment that the person I accused of would wow. have suffered if they were found guilty. Okay. So that is, of course, meant to limit kind of frivolous lawsuit taking place. Then there's the emergence of the inquisitorial system, which is basically, well, what if I'm dead? I cannot <laughs> accuse someone of killing me if I have died. Yeah. <laughs> and therefore, um, that's a simplistic way of putting it, but it's a helpful way of understanding it. The judicial system sees a crime has been committed. They have heard of it somehow. There's rumor. They are the one to ex officio begin the investigation and say, how we suspect you, we therefore accuse you and bring you in. So those two systems mean that you're going to have a slightly different um, procedure at court because you're either facing a, another person who is saying, I have accused you, or you are facing essentially the figure of what we might uh, in American parlance called kind of like a district attorney, right? The representative for the government. But you're brought into court, you're brought into the appropriate jurisdiction, let's say. You have the right to know who has spoken against you. You have the right to confront your accusers. And this is a really fundamental right that gets established around the 12th century in Europe, is that mm -hmm. everybody has the right to confront their accuser. And I officially, before, because I can hear the people on the pod yelling at me, this is not the Inquisition we are talking about. Oh, thank you. <laughs> something. Yeah. It does not apply to uh, <laughs> most criminal circumstances in Europe at this time. So okay. we're just going to set that to one side, if that's all right. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so you come in, so you hear who's spoken against you. You're allowed to call your own witnesses. Uh, if you are in a court of middle or high justice, and that's determined based on the severity of the crime, whether you're in a low, middle, or high justice court, uh, you are permitted to have legal representation. And in fact, um, in by about the 1330s in France, in high justice courts, you have to receive special permission to not have legal representation. You actually have to plead to hmm. not have an advocate on mm -hmm. your behalf. And uh, that's in part a recognition that the justice system has become so complex that the law is becoming so complex that it is inheritably unequitable to place an accused in that circumstance without an advocate by their side. So witnesses can be called forth. You would likely be interrogated. If you are the accused, you would be questioned. You would not necessarily be tortured. Um, this is something that all of my students love to ask about is, does that mean you will be tortured? Not <laughs> always. Unfortunately, mm. the documents that we have from the time, they're a bit cagey about whether torture occurs. Um, so a lot of it is reading between the lines, trying to figure it out. Um, making it even more confusing is, uh, at some points at least, the first round of torture was understood to be putting you in the room with the torture implements and just leaving you alone for 12 hours, 24 hours, just to think about what that could do to you. Oh my gosh. And then coming back <laughs> and taking you out of there, sitting you before the fire, giving you something warm to drink, and then talking to you again. It's like, do you have anything to confess now? Oh no. And, you know, so people in the Middle Ages would have understood that as a form of torture, right? But when I'm trying to explain that to my students, well, is it? I mean, normally, you know, we would say if we were 
trying to check off torture happening or not, we would say, well, no, there was no infliction of actual bodily harm. And we don't tend to think of psychological torture as existing in the Middle Ages. But I would argue they did have a slightly more sophisticated understanding of mental stress that you could put somebody under. Yeah, Um, absolutely. It's extremely stressful. uh, So ultimately, you have this back and forth. You might be imprisoned if, again, it's pretrial imprisonment, if the interrogations, the fact-finding is going on for a long period of time. Again, you can pay a bail or a petition for a form of parole. So it doesn't mean you are in there indefinitely or for the entire duration of your trial. In terms of a decision being made, this is um, the frustrating part of my work is most of those records didn't survive in terms of the end of the trial. And now, don't survive implies that they ever existed. And we're just not sure. So it seems to be the case that in most instances, whether we're talking about petty theft, whether we're talking about an inheritance dispute, whether we're talking about murder, some kind of what we would today call a plea bargain takes place behind the scenes. And the record that we have in the court rolls just stops. And the person never appears in court again. And that's just the end of it. Um, Other times you'll see a punishment indicated. Very, very rarely is the punishment actually listed as incarceration Hmm. when we're talking about the secular court. Most often the punishment that you would see if you see something listed is you'll see um, a form of shaming punishment. So the pillory, the stocks, um, what's known as the ladder, which is another form of stock, just another uncomfortable position to be bound in and then physically kind of displayed in front of people. There's what's known as the amende honorable, which is where you are making recompense to the society for what you have done. And by far the most common is a fine, is paying some kind of a fine, both to the court and to the victim. Yes, executions did take place. And certainly when we look at statute books, just about everything is worthy of execution. Everything gets a capital punishment in the books. When we actually look at the trial records, not even a quarter of the trial records suggest that people are truly being executed for the crimes the statute books say they ought to be executed for. So that's always something we have to be really careful of when we're comparing um, legal prescriptive texts with practice. That's super interesting. So you're saying that a lot of times when the official crime for something was execution, there would either be um, a, a bargain or some agreement would be reached and they would not actually be executed. That's super interesting. That's um, correct. And that's true even in the cases of murder, mm-hmm. high treason against the king, mm-hmm. which we think like, of course, the king is going to kill them. Like kings yeah. are very thin skinned. <laughs> and yet, um, most often we don't see executions for treason taking place. Mm. That's interesting. Do you have any sense of, of why um, there was, why that might be, or um, any thoughts on that? <laughs> I think, I, I do, I have lots of thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, one reason, when we're looking at individuals who are extremely high up in society, so when we're talking about the aristocracy, One of the reasons we don't see executions taking place so much, say, in the period that I'm studying, 14th century, 15th century, is this is a time when you have 100 years war going on, and you Mm -hmm. need those aristocrats on your side. Mm -hmm. And so, okay, maybe they betrayed you, and they were helping the English, but maybe you can convince them to come back to your side. Mm -hmm. And so you're playing kind of a longer game at that moment Mm -hmm. in terms of trying to figure out uh, how to... Uh, work with someone who is maybe not the most reliable, but he's got 500 knights under his command. And that would have been really helpful at Cressy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so you're making those calls. Now, interestingly, we have instances where, for example, when Charles V becomes regent, his father, John, has been captured by the English, is being under a very pleasant arrest in London with King Edward, and he's acting as regent for the realm, he has some nobles who had sort of betrayed him that he wants to grant a pardon to in order Mm -hmm. to bring them back to his side. And the Parlement of Paris says you can't do that. That is in violation of the royal dignity to 
essentially permit them to get away with what they did. Um, and Charles says, well, I'm glad you think that, but I'm still going to do what I'm going to do. Um, so you have these <laughs> moments where the law court and the king have different understandings of mm. how the law should be applied in these circumstances. So that's one explanation. But as I was saying at the beginning, in terms of my PhD research, I looked at how treason was becoming a broader category. And so treason was much more than just, you know, handing over the battle plans to Edward, right? So that the French would be defeated as a or something like that. And that was an Edward wrong example, but you get what I yeah. mean. <laughs> um, so you'll get things like any crime that's committed on a king's highway. That becomes an act of treason of Les Majesté. Uh, you can have even murder starts to be paired with the language of treason at this time. Forgery, counterfeiting, um, even some instances of rape are counted treason, even though it's not related to the royal family. And so there, treason is very specifically being expanded in part to grant the king more sovereignty, grant the king larger jurisdiction, and a, a stronger claim over France at this time. But that means you're sweeping up a lot more people into this thing you have called treason. To then take the highest punishment of treason, decapitation, drawing and quartering, right? And apply that to that large swath of people. It was just untenable. I think mm-hmm. not simply that the court thought about it and said like, well, if we do that, we'll have a rebellion on our hands. I think it was more, it just never would have occurred to them even though they were using the language of les majestés in order to bring a jurisdictional role into that case, that they then assumed they had to bring in the same form of punishment at the same time. I think in their minds, these were two really separate ideas. I guess a, a follow-up question that I have for you, um, maybe not specifically about treason, but um, about the, I guess, equity of these different kinds of punishments. Um, you mentioned earlier that they um, there were sort of different high, middle, and low courts that were um, taking taking trials and dealing with crimes. Um, do you see um, a lot of, I guess, equity in punishment for the same kinds of crimes across those courts? Or um, do you have a sense that like people who were in certain social classes maybe just had different... Um, Social class matters a lot. Yeah. It's extremely important in this regard. Absolutely. There's there's no sort of universalism to it. And again, that's, you see it sort of being softened within the um, jurisprudence that sort of it it should be more equitable. You're starting to see movements towards that and what's being written by the late 13th century. But in practice, in part, when we're dealing with fines, there's a recognition that you can't impose a 1,000 leave fine on a cottager who mm-hmm. is lucky to make a leave, two leaves in a year, right? Somebody who's essentially indigent, you can't impose a fine that they would never have a chance of paying, right? So that sort of imbalance can work both ways. It can actually work toward what we might call greater justice, um, but it can also work in the opposite direction, right? Um, So women, for example, are treated much differently under the law than men are. Now, they have more legal freedoms than in England, for example. So women in France are able to appear in court on their own. They don't have to be with their husband or with a brother or something like that. Um, They can speak on their own behalf. On the other hand, if they're going to be executed at this point in time, unless they've committed bestiality, they will be burned at the stake um, in terms of execution. Yeah. Really? That's, wow. that's just the standard form. <laughs> so if you see a woman in the 14th century in France, she's being burned at the stake, don't assume she's a witch. Um, one, that's the early <laughs> modern period. We, we have nothing to do with that. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, but also that's just actually the standard punishment. If it's bestiality, she'll be buried alive along with the animal with whom she fornicated. Oh, is there a reason? Just uh, out of curiosity. <laughs> um, so some of the theories around this are that women's criminality is more disruptive to the society. So Mm. this is a society that thinks in terms of kind of the macrocosm, microcosm, that just as children owe obedience to the father, the wife does to the husband, the subjects do to the king, Mm -hmm. humanity does to God. And so people rebelling against God is terrible, right? 
So a wife rebelling against her husband is terrible. So woman's disorderliness, which of course, because of Eve and the Garden of Eden, is the origin of disorderliness within the world. Her disorderliness is particularly pernicious within the society and needs a special form of cleansing. With the burning at the stake, I will say that um, two aspects that vaguely, vaguely soften it. Um, Mm -hmm. Most people would either die of smoke inhalation before the flames actually consumed them Mm -hmm. because of how the fires would be built, intentionally to create a lot of smoke. Um, The other way is if the person confessed um, at the end and was sort of granted a final mercy, then she would be garroted upon the stake prior to the flames being lit. So she would already be dead at, at the point that the conflagration began. Okay. So it was more Minor of a mercies. sort of symbolic um, image rather than an actual yes. punishment. That's slightly better. Right. <laughs> and in Paris, the traditional place where burning happened, mm-hmm. uh, so the walls of Philip II along Saint-Honoré, when you're heading west, um, there's the gate of Saint-Honoré, and right outside that gate was the largest cattle market in Paris at the time. And up until the 1380s, it's outside the city walls of Paris. So it's the largest cattle market. It's called the Plaza Poso. And that's where the burning would take place. Whereas execution in form of decapitation took place at the Place de Greve, which was right mm-hmm. in front of the Hôtel de Ville, right across from the Conciergerie in Notre Dame. And then hanging would take place in the northeastern part of the city. So there were very specific areas in which each of these... Yes. Were, would they yeah. be um, attended publicly usually? or Yes, all of these were public. And execution was meant to be public. In fact, I think that's why we don't see incarceration very often as a punishment in the Middle Ages mm-hmm. um, in terms of post-trial. Because... What you find in the legal documents, when they do get to the point where they're concluding a case and saying this person shall be punished, they'll say punished in an exemplary fashion. That's the term Mm. of art that is used. An exemplary fashion, what it's trying to tell you, of course, is that this needs to be seen, needs to be done as an example. Um, And that speaks to one of the other things about how crime was understood at the time. To go back to your earlier question, Mm -hmm. crime was understood as contagion. It was a disease within society. If it wasn't contained, it could poison the entire body of the body politic and so needed to be dealt with. And so you have this exemplary punishment to serve as a warning to other criminals, to other people, to turn people's minds towards God and their own sinfulness and locking somebody up behind walls doesn't show much. That reminds me a little bit, um, not to bring this back to Geltner again, that reminds me of something else that he talks a little bit about with the um, physical spaces of prisons. Um, and so even his, his argument is kind of like, even when people were being held in prisons as very, um, as temporary measures rather than actual punishments, prisons were very porous. So there were people kind of going in, going out, you know, and a lot of people from, um, you know, the surrounding areas would be in the prison or around the prison um, and kind of interacting with people. Um, is that something that you see in in France also? Um, like prisons that are more open than we might expect? Absolutely. Yes, um, that that is very true. The prison, for one, we think of prisons today as being um, kind of in rural areas or suburbs, outside the city, right? You don't walk through downtown and walk past a prison by and large today in modern America, modern Canada. That is different for the Middle Ages. The prison is centrally located. Um, For example, we're talking about Paris. Anybody who's uh, been to Paris and been on the Paris Metro, there's a stop called Châtelet, uh, which is basically uh, kind of one stop off before you cross the bank to go onto the Ile de la Cité where Notre Dame mm-hmm. is. And Châtelet, I mean, that it means little fortress. And that had been mm-hmm. the medieval prison. Uh, been long since torn down. It was right there in the middle of the city. You, you couldn't miss it. And yeah, I mean, people walked in. I have lots of lots of trial documents where people like go in and they chat with prisoners and they actually like chat up prisoners and kind of get them to join 
a new criminal conspiracy that they are organizing. It's like, you look like a fine fellow who'd like to get out of prison and help me commit some more crimes. What do you say? Shall we do that? <laughs> really? And they're like, can you get me out of here? I can. Well, then yes, absolutely. I will happily commit more crimes with you. Wow. <laughs> I mean, they're not quite that blatant, but that is what is happening. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> right. Um, so absolutely, there is a poorishness that's taking place. There's also poorishness in that there's what we might even today refer to as kind of a day release program, where they are permitted to leave the prison during the day, conduct their affairs, and then return to prison at night. And so mm -hmm. they have to sleep there at night, um, but they're able to do things. And that's particularly important if part of your um, incarceration is around questions of debt, for example. Right. So the ability to make money is very much tied to your ability to leave prison at that point. Um, merchants often conducted their affairs from prison when imprisoned. Um, they weren't able to do it as effectively as when they were on the outside, but they were mm -hmm. certainly able to do it. Right? So yeah, the, the ability for families, friends, associates, to come in and out of the prison and speak with prisoners and things like that is very, very different from what we have today. And I think that speaks to one of the things that makes prison really different in terms of the medieval imagination, in terms of how people understood mm -hmm. whether being incarcerated was a stigma. Because mm -hmm. you didn't have the severing that can take place in the modern carceral system. And there, and because incarceration is so rarely in France used as a post-conviction punishment. And even when it is, it's not nearly for as long as duration as we see of prison sentences in modern America. What it means is that somebody is there for maybe six months, maybe a year. Eight years would be really, really, really on the outside. Right? When we see like tales about people being in prison in the Middle Ages for 10 years, 20 years, that's because they were off like fighting in a war and they got captured by the other side. That, that's a really, really different kind of imprisonment than I accidentally killed my neighbor with some head shears because I got really mad about his cow. Yeah. <laughs> and so that then means that how people understood whether somebody was incarcerated, changing their reputation mm -hmm. is very different from today. Yeah. So while our records are limited, one of the things I never see is this idea that because somebody had been incarcerated, therefore their ability to reintegrate into society once released mm -hmm. has been diminished. And yet that is one of the biggest issues that we have today for the modern carceral system in the United States. In terms of integration to society, um, ability to frequent the various establishments, public spaces, um, without this idea of sort of being watched, right? There isn't this parole system of you have to check in and you have to stay, you know, a kilometer away from a school and you can't go into playgrounds mm -hmm. and you can't have a driver's license, right? Things mm -hmm. like that, that are really limiting on the freedoms of movement post-incarceration. Um, that's just not something that we have a lot of evidence of. The, and one of the ways that I'm able to see that in the documents is you see people showing up, they, they've been in the judicial system, and then you see them cropping up in other documents, whether it's they're witnessing a, um, a will for somebody else in the community. Mm -hmm. So they're still recognized as a valid person whose word has merit, that they mm -hmm. can speak to the validity of this kind of contract. That tells us that they've retained a certain kind of reputation within the society. Or, you know, when they come up in front of the criminal justice system again in the 14th century, you're not seeing that their case is being dealt with particularly differently because they'd shown up before. Mm. So there isn't the sort of accumulated um, baggage that comes with only having been there once before. Um, now, if you are known as a notorious pickpocket, notorious arsonist, something like that, that will ultimately work against you. Yeah. Uh, it's not as though you're <laughs> always sure. starting with a blank slate. But one round of being within the system is not the sort of social death sentence that it can often be today. That's interesting, especially because I feel like when, whether in you know pop culture or just like casually, we talk about... Um, medieval punishments for things, we tend to think of them as um, 
like you said before, like very severe um, and very like draconian and also um, just having like an enormous impact on, on people's lives. And it's interesting that in this particular situation, um, although these punishments obviously did have a really big impact on these people, it was not um, necessarily something that would follow you for your entire life that you actually had a little bit more, um, more freedom than you might um, now in a similar situation. That's super interesting. I was actually, I was wondering if I could um, ask you a little bit about something related to that, which is um, you, I was looking at your website yesterday, um, and uh, I would love to hear you talk about that if you'd like to, but um, one of the things that struck me is that you um, really focus on people's personal stories of, um, of being implicated in crime and encountering the criminal justice system, um, and that, that, um, was really striking to me because I think that a lot of the way that we tend to think about um, medieval crime um, is very, uh, and I guess medieval violence in general is very distanced. Um, like one of the things that I was thinking about, um, do you know of the, um, I think it's called the medieval murders map. Have you seen this before? I'm not familiar now. So it is, I think it's from Cambridge and it's basically this like interactable um, map of London. And I think it's in like 1350. And um, you can filter um, all of the, uh, I think, all of the murders, obviously, um, and associated crimes that happened in that period by uh, weapon and area and date. So I could say, like, oh, I would like to know who was murdered with a hammer by the Thames in the 1350s or something. Um, <laughs> and that's obviously, um, one, it's like it's taken a lot of research to put together and it's very interesting. And it's also like a little bit funny, um, <laughs> but it's also, um, you know, if you think about it for a while, it's like, well, each of those murders, you know, involved at least a couple of people um, and impacted their lives, you know, in some cases terminally, but also, you know, for the people that were accused of those crimes, they were impacted also. Um, and it can be really hard to like keep up that um, sense of engagement and, and uh, awareness of people's humanity, like across time. Anyway, that's a very long way of saying that I think that your project does that like really um, well. <laughs> um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, why you decided to start collecting people's stories in that way or what purpose you think that um, serves. Um, I think it is because I, I like to work with the trial sources directly as opposed to um, looking at sort of the statutes or something like that. I like mm -hmm. digging into the sort of nitty gritty of each individual story because when you do that, you're able to kind of shift things out. And mm -hmm. so you start to see, okay, we see that treason is starting to be associated with the language of murder. Oh, but when we look more closely, there are these really specific sort of parameters it falls into. It's not a universal that's taking place. Um, there's also... I think it's very easy when looking at crime in the past to find it amusing. I, I have this one case that I blogged about that looks at a woman named Agnes. Uh, her, she's sitting outside in the evening and doing her work. She's a carter and a weaver. And her neighbor, Jean, passes by, but he doesn't say hi to her. She's like, is he mad at me? And so she goes up to him and she's like, Jean, you know, why didn't you say hi to me? Are you mad at me? Is something wrong? Like you, you come over to my place all the time and you drink and you eat and we make merry and you chat with me and my husband. I don't understand what's going on. And he's like, if I don't want to talk to you, I don't want to talk to you and just leave me alone, woman. Just leave me in peace. To which her response is, well, if you're going to be mad at me, it's going to be for a good cause. And then she goes into her house, grabs an ember from the fire, puts it under the thatch of his house which is next door to hers, so this seems a little ridiculous, and literally burns his house down to the ground. And her explanation, her description of what happens is basically he didn't say hi to me. And this is one of those things where I, I am still trying to figure out this because I have never um, in all my research encountered anything that suggested that not saying hi to your neighbor rose to a level of insult that this woman perceived it as. And unsurprisingly, the court decides that she is a menace to the society. Yeah. 
and um, they say uh, she shall have the punishment she deserves, which of course is burning at the stake. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't end well for Agnes. Um, so I find these people really fascinating. I find it really interesting to kind of understand why do they do the things they do or when they change their stories, why do the details change? Why do you say in one version of your confession that the people who gave you packets of poison to drop into wells, which one, don't do that. Um, but two, why in the first version do you say that it was a bunch of Dominican friars? And in the second version, you just say, well, they were dressed as Dominican friars, but I can't be sure. <laughs> That's so <Right>? ominous. <laughs> it's like, were you hoping that using Dominican friars in the first instance would gain you points? And then you realized it wasn't, so you try a different version the second time around? <laughs> what? What's kind of going on between your first confession and your second confession that something has shifted? Little things like that, I find just fundamentally fascinating. And I love doing close reads of textual sources. And I also just generally hoped that the website would kind of be a place where people could come to learn odd things about the Middle Ages, but through a consistent framework. Mm-hmm. And that consistent framework being medieval criminal trials. But in the process, you find out about Dominican friars or well poisoning or the origin of the term jack and ape, all these different things that I've sort of come across while doing it. Yeah, that's super cool. That's really interesting. I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about um, sort of the comparisons we might make between um, medieval French incarceration and modern incarceration and the problems with you know, those kinds of comparisons. Um, But I guess my first question in that kind of vein um, was that, especially, um, you know, in the past decade, the past five years, but especially um, right now, you know, when we have um, a lot of focus on both police abolition in here in America and um, prison abolition, um, and also, you know, worldwide, that's that's something that is becoming really, uh, widespread in a way that I don't think it has been before. Um, I was wondering if you think that um, there are any um, pre-existing um, medieval histories that you see or indications that you see of um, something like either prison abolition, or I guess in this case, because incarceration isn't such a big thing at this time, it would be more like changes to the way that punishment is working. Um, are there people in the medieval period who are sort of pushing back against this um, system? I mean, there are people who push back against, for example, the use of torture that's taking place in the Middle Ages. So we see medieval people commenting on the use of torture and things like that. Um, because in medieval France, incarceration isn't as um, big as it is today. And it and key, I think, is it's also not as dehumanizing as mm-hmm. it is. We already talked a little bit about how people are able to stay connected to their society in various ways that I think Mm -hmm. is really important. Um, And I think even if we fail to get to a model of full prison abolition, um, I would hope that we could at least work on integrating inmates into the society while they are still incarcerated. I just actually heard on the news today that I believe it's San Francisco is moving to eliminate the fees for use of the phone in their mm-hmm. prisons, which and would be amazing because the ability to communicate with the outside world should not come at a cost because that, that is a long-term cost that takes place. So the, there's that component of it. I think the Middle Ages can speak to us about forms of restorative justice or transformative justice. I know that more and more people are beginning to look to alternative solutions to punishment. One of the things about medieval justice is it is focused on the community and society in a way that ultimately I, I would say that our system is not. Um, and that I think exists on two fronts uh, problematically within our world. One is that there's all this tank language about, well, this needs to be done for the victims, that there needs to be this sort of punishment for the victims, irrespective of whether that is in the best interest of the society at large. And I think there's a misunderstanding of how prison actually impacts the society at large. I think society at large often is code for just saying white suburbia, 
feels more comfortable with people incarcerated, um, but not the actual communities from which these people are being taken or the communities that those people have potentially harmed. And I say potentially there because so much of modern incarceration comes up from victimless crimes. And that's something that you don't see with medieval incarceration, that there are not incarceration for victimless crimes. There's execution for victimless crimes when we look at heresy and witchcraft, but the medieval idea of what counts as a victim um, was different because of the nature of Christian hegemony at the time. But, you know, somebody who gets drunk on a regular basis, which is the closest I can get to, say, incarceration for weed, that just didn't exist in the Middle Ages, right? Uh, so, so that's one aspect of it, is sort of having a real hard look at what we mean by victimization, what we mean by the good of society. And the medieval system had a much more expansive idea of how to make amends with society. So one thing we still have today, of course, is the idea of the fine, of a monetary sort of recompense. Um, there was also the idea of pilgrimage, which one can look at almost as a kind of temporary exile. Mm-hmm. That a person is sort of being sent away, hopefully on a quest of spiritual enlightenment, though whether they actually successfully feel enlightened at the end is more personal than any of my documents could ever say. <laughs> or there's that idea of the amend honorable, which is this, you're on the one hand being publicly shamed, but you're also saying, I recognize that here are the places within the community that I have done wrong, and here are the places where I shall attempt to make up for it. And again, that, that use of an example, right? Example as opposed to threat. I think prison is us- mostly used in our society as a threat. This is what shall happen to you if you do this. And clearly that's not working. Um, though crime is going down and has been going down for the past several decades. And I think it's important to recognize that despite incarceration going up. But this idea that there can be a way for the victims of the society and the injured to work with the accused, um, I think is really important. Another way that we can sort of see that incarceration is not the, the, the big fear, I would say, that exists today about, you know, well, if you open up the prisons and let all these people out, you know, they'll just go on a wild rampage and will just have the world in fire which seems to be a lot of the pushback that you see against prison abolition, um, the Middle Ages can offer us a counterexample. Mm-hmm. It was not uncommon to just release all the prisoners from within a prison, right? That might happen upon a king's coronation and they make a visit to a town, right? And so you have a royal visitation mm-hmm. and you would have a release or it happen in a jubilee or it would be another time when you might see it. Um, there are these different times. And you don't see a huge, like if we actually look at the documentation about crimes, we don't see that there's a huge uptick in crime taking place. We don't see an uptick in people writing about crime or a fear of crime. Um, People aren't saying like, oh no, King, please don't release the prisoners from the jail because we'll all be murdered in our beds. That isn't taking place, right? So one, there's no indication that you get more crime by doing this but also people's understanding of what incarceration was for and who those prisoners were was really, really different than we have today. So I think that's something um, that's important. Another sort of lesson I think we can take from the Middle Ages is we've been talking a lot about justice, but if you look at medieval France and the coronation oaths and how the monarchy was understood, Kings had two really, really fundamental roles that they were meant to uphold, justice and mercy. And these were equally important. And in modern society, I think we tend to give mercy short shrift, especially governmental mercy. It is either seen as a sign of weakness or as a sign of cronyism. So in the United States, we have this tradition of the presidential pardon. And yet that power is barely used when you look at it as a numbers game. Even if we just look at it as federal prisoners, right? Not talking about state prisoners, just federal prisoners. As a numbers game, it's barely used at all by the president, Mm -hmm. right? We probably, like, by the numbers, pardon more turkeys on a yearly basis. And so there's a much more robust application of mercy 
in the Middle Ages. And we see this, for example, in petitions for pardon. Um, in France, they're often known as lettre de remission. Right. Now, they didn't have a 100% success rate just because you petition for pardon doesn't mean you will receive it. Um, but, and this goes to kind of what I try to do with my website. There's a recognition that we lose so much today about how important individual circumstances were. And it's something that people at the time in the Middle Ages recognized in the examination of these pardons. And those pardons are usually coming from people who had been incarcerated, right? People who had received actual prison sentences as their punishment. And the remissions could be used for anything. They could be used for theft, though that's less common simply because you're less likely to be in prison for theft, but we do see a couple mm -hmm. of those. But murder, rebellion, murder of like the king's officers, right? So a form of treason. Um, all of those are acceptable to have pardoned and you don't have to have a personal relationship to the king for that to take place. And you don't have to uh, sort of be part of the cause du jour, right, of the first spouse or something like that mm -hmm. to be granted a reprieve in this way. So I think our society could learn a lot from medieval ideas of mercy, if nothing else. Did you have any other um, sort of uh, points you wanted to get to or questions you wanted to um, raise? Um, I think really just two. Uh, so mm -hmm. one, uh, we were focusing so much today about uh, the prison system. I didn't really talk about this, but the Middle Ages also can offer us ideas about what an unpoliced society can look like. An unlike police society doesn't mean a lawless society. And the forms of... Uh, sort of community responsibility uh, and what is in both England and in France referred to as the hue and cry. Um, the responsibility that when you hear somebody in distress, you are to come help. You must come help and give assistance to people. And that's equally true whether you are a man or a woman uh, within the society, 14th, 15th century. Now, this can be complicated, right? Um, the Middle Ages did not view everybody that existed in a town as part of the same community. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't mean to suggest that it is a panacea for what ails the modern United States. But I think there, there's a good reason to study that history and think about what it's doing and, and why that could function without a police system. Um, the other thing I would say is that um, if people wanted to see my ridiculous drawings of squid mm -hmm. or anything else, they can find it at medievalnotary.com. Yes, go check it out. They're fantastic. I think that's actually a really good place to um, end. Um, so thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you so much for having me. Medieval Pod is produced and hosted by me, Emily Price. Our theme song is Through the City 2 by Croander, used under a Creative Commons BYNC non-commercial license. Our logo was designed by Kat Schneider. You can find the show notes and additional learning resources at medievalpod.newmedialab.cuny.edu, and you can follow us on Twitter at medievalpod.